The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been uh, looking at the mindfulness of breathing instructions the last few weeks, and uh, I'm going to talk tonight about uh, craving as we continue the discussion, chapters, uh, I think it's 33 and 34, having to do with the Four Noble Truths. But I want to check in about the practice instructions. And as the weeks go by, we'll go beyond those first six instructions. First two have to do with tracking the breath in and out. When we're wholehearted about that, when we are inspired enough to actually take up the instruction, which is when breathing in, know we're breathing in. When breathing out, know we're breathing out. And to know it with enough alertness that you're actually comprehending like the way the breath is. Is it long? Is it short? So it's not a superficial sort of, yeah, I know I'm breathing. That's not mindfulness of breathing. The mind has to be sort of putting the activity of breathing, right? The physical sensations of breathing right into the fore of awareness. And there's, you know, the normal way would be like I'm bringing my attention to the breath. But that way actually has more... more tension that's, than is necessary. It can be more of a relaxing back into the space of awareness, like the knowing mind, right? Like right now, there's a knowing mind. And in the same way, you don't have to lean in to hear the sound of my voice. We don't have to like direct the attention to the breath. Because the breath, the sensations of breathing in, they're naturally felt in the knowing mind. So we don't have to energetically like go somewhere to know the breath. Breathing in is known right here in the mind, in the heart. Breathing out is known right here. So it's a much more relaxed stance or way of being, this mindfulness of breath. The hard part is remembering that it's being known. It's not so much the effort to know the breath, the sensations of the breath, but to remember that the sensations of breathing are already being known. The mind is already sensitive to the physicality of breathing. It's only when the mind is distracted that we forget that breathing in is like this or breathing out is like this. So those are the first two. The way it's divided into two instructions is the Buddha asks us to know whether the breath is long, breathing in, breathing out, or know whether the breath is short, breathing in, breathing out. But the idea is just being attentive enough, continuously enough, that there are fewer and fewer gaps or breaks where the mind becomes forgetful because it's lost in thought or involved in some other activity, so it loses the thread. And the idea here is, when I have that thread, of remembering breathing in is like this, breathing out is like this, comprehending each breath, each half breath, so there's some sense, oh yeah, that's a short breath or a long breath or a rough or a smooth breath. To do that, I have to put down thought to a very large degree. Thinking about this, worrying, planning, remembering, judging, comparing, analyzing, all of that cognitive activity either recedes far into the background or ceases for a time. 
So even these first two instructions, pretty radical to just be with the breath in and of itself, to put it down. Then the third instruction, the Buddha asks us to notice the holistic quality. So the awareness that's knowing the in-breath is knowing everything that's here and now. Because it takes thinking to compartmentalize our experience. There's this and there's this. Oh, I'm paying attention to this, but not that. But with a relaxed and open, inclusive awareness, I might be breathing in and knowing the sensations of breathing in, but I'm not excluding anything else. It's all there in the mind, in the field of awareness or the space of awareness. So the third instruction, the Buddha is asking us to notice the holistic or the inclusive nature of the awareness that's knowing the in-breath and the inclusive or holistic nature of the awareness that's knowing the out-breath. And you see, it's, it's healing the mind. The mind, our mind, is normally fragmented because of thinking and ideas and fixations on the ideas. The consciousness or the quality of mind is tight and has boundaries, divisions, fragmented. But as we cultivate this awareness of the body, using the breath as sort of a stand-in for the body, breathing in, awareness of breathing out, we can experience the holistic, inclusive quality of awareness. Everything's included as we breathe in. Everything's included as we breathe out. And that leads to the fourth instruction, to tap in or to tune in to the calm. When the awareness is holistic, when the mind has abandoned its thoughts about this and that, planning, judging, comparing, worrying, all that activity, mental activity, and there's a simple, pure, holistic knowing of breathing in like this, whole bodies like this, breathing out, whole body like this. The way it is now is like this, breathing in. The way it is now is like this, breathing out. Then we begin to feel a sense of calm. The more we notice the calm, it's the, the, the body which is basically getting dumped on by the mind all the time. When the mind is greedy, the tension of that greed is manifest in the body. When the mind is angry or upset, we feel it in the body. The body is the recipient of the mind's tension. right? So when the mind is more holistic, not dividing things up, not caught in thought, then the body begins to reflect that as calmness. And we try to experience that calmness throughout the body. So no place in the body is left untouched by a sense of calm. And then that sense of holistic calm presence in the body, the mind gets more refined, more subtle, and we begin to feel movement. Just the natural movement of things, the natural flow of body and mind. And this is what we mean by joy. It's a light feeling. Things are heavy when they feel self-important or real or about me. When we define them with thought, with concept, then experience can have the appearance of weight, solidity. But when we're in that more holistic Knowing of the breath coming in, going out, the whole body, 
breathing in, the whole body going out, then there's a more fluid quality in the mind-body experience. And so we notice that as joy or rapture, breathing in. Notice the rapture, the joy, breathing out. And then that rapture matures into a sense of ease. So these are the first six instructions in the mindfulness of breathing. And well, over the weeks ahead, we'll go through more and more of them. But just any, take maybe five minutes or so, if there are any questions about that or experiences in your sit tonight or your sits at home, if you're working with these instructions of mindfulness of breathing, anything come to mind that we should check in about? Yeah, because when the, the mind, you know, our untrained mind associates being calm with, this would be a good time to go to sleep. So in practice, actually, we want calm to coincide with a very bright and alert mind. So generally, I'm assuming you're getting enough sleep, so it's not just that you're exhausted, which you know what to do if you're not getting enough sleep. So, but Because this happens a lot to meditators, even when they're getting plenty of sleep. And what happens is the body gets confused by the experience of calm. It, in short, it takes the experience of calm personally, as opposed to objectively. Right? Calm is just calm. It's pleasant. And it can be something for wisdom, the wisdom in the mind to investigate in the same way if we were having a really yucky feeling, a yucky emotional feeling or a yucky uh, feeling in terms of the body sensations, we'd get interested in it. I mean, you'd probably get interested in it with aversion, but if our practice had a little bit more momentum, we'd get interested without aversion, right? Oh, this is interesting, this yucky feeling, breathing in, this yucky feeling, breathing out. Well, we want to have the same quality of interest with um, pleasant experience, like calm, as we do with unpleasant experience. But in the beginning, it's much more natural for us to be interested when an experience is intensely unpleasant than it is when it's pleasant. I mean, just even in general life, you know, when everything is fine and really pleasant and organized and, well, we... The natural thing to think is, well, this is a good time to take a nap. So we don't want to just get alert when there's, you know, a tiger stalking us or some danger of losing our job or our relationship falling apart. We want that brightness, that alertness, even when everything is smooth and even. That takes training because it's not the habit of the mind to be interested when things are internally pleasant and relaxed and easeful. So you can even use a phrase uh, or some words in the mind to inspire some interest. Like, uh, what is this experience of calm? Like, just as a way of inviting a more profound intimacy, interest, in the pleasantness of it. As if you're encouraging the mind to really connect, because it's really unfortunate that with our conventional minds, when something is very pleasant or peaceful, we usually go unconscious. But why not be really there when it's pleasant? 
it's the same way, you know, we could crave all day long for some kind of food that we want. And then when we finally get it, what do we do? We have the radio on and we're reading something and there's somebody in the room that we're talking to. We're not really there with the crunch, with the sweetness, with the you know different elements of that experience. It's so ironic how we could crave something and then not want to show up in a full, open, sensitive, interested way. So get interested in the calm. Like, What does it feel like? Is there any place in the body it hasn't yet begun to express? You know, So just noticing it, noticing where it is, where it isn't. Appreciating it. Like appreciating the pleasantness of it. How do I know it's pleasant? Like what is it about the experience that tells the mind that it's pleasant? How do I know it's pleasant? In the same way with pain, like what makes these sensations pain? How does that understanding pain arise? Now, all of these questions, it's not about thinking about the experience of calm. But I'm using, you know, we have to use language. And language, right thought, can really direct the attention in a useful way, keep it energized. And opening the eyes is a good technique. Nothing wrong with that. Practicing with the eyes open, sitting a little bit more straight helps too. And very clearly acknowledging the pleasantness. Generally, it's the not recognizing that it's pleasant that leads to going to sleep. So if we're very clear that the experience of the body-mind is really pleasant and cultivate some interest in it, that supports not going to sleep. Anything else before we go on? about the meditation tonight. And like I said, we'll come back to this in the weeks ahead too. So most of you know, but in case you're relatively new, we've been working through Joseph Goldstein's book. few of you have the book and are reading through it. Probably most of you don't have it, but feel free to get it. We're about two-thirds of the way through, so we're finishing up soon. Mindfulness, a practical guide to awakening. If you don't know, Joseph Goldstein is one of the senior teachers in this lineage of Buddhism here in the West, coming out of Theravada Buddhism that you find in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka. Here in the West, it, sometimes it's called Theravada Buddhism, which is just means the teachings of our elders, the path of the elders. But in the West, often it's called insight meditation or Vipassana meditation. And... Uh, Joseph is one of the founders of Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, one of the major retreat centers in the States. And this book is about this talk the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness, how to pay attention. And the last foundation or the last way involves learning some maps. And one of the most important maps the Buddha offers us, a way of seeing, it's like we're borrowing right view. Because normally we have, we just experience life through a self-centered view. It's about me. What's happening to me? What am I seeing? What am I experiencing? Is it better than what you're experiencing? That's the normal way we experience experience. And the Buddha says, well, try training your mind to experience experience through this other map or this other way of being, way of seeing, way of understanding called the Four Noble Truths. So it's a way, a liberating way to relate to experience. 
And it's paradoxical that that liberating way to experience experience starts with an honest and profound acknowledgement of the limitations of our experience. This is what I talked about for those who were around in early December. I gave a number of talks on this first noble truth, which is at any moment, whether we're in our formal meditation time during the day or just going about our business during the day, when we have the wherewithal, like even in this moment, there is this experience of sitting or this experience of listening. And we can notice, regardless of whether this for you is a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience or a neutral experience, you can notice the limitations or the unsatisfactory nature. Now, this doesn't mean that your experience right now is bad or even unpleasant. It just means that it's not enough to make you happy in a lasting way. Like being at Common Ground on Sunday night, as nice as it might be for some of you, doesn't quench the uneasiness of your heart, right? So that it's gone forever. Has that happened to anybody? (laughs) No. And think about it. You know, some of us have been around for many decades now and we've had a lot of moments of experience. I mean, countless moments of experience. Some of those moments have been intensely pleasurable. Some have been intensely painful. A lot of them have been relatively neutral. But the cumulative effect of having experienced all those experiences has it left us satisfied in a fundamental, continuous, permanent way? No. It's like no matter how many nice meals I've tasted or nice interactions I've had with other human beings, there's still the desire for more, the need for more, the craving for more. No matter how much safety I've been able to gather around me, a big house, a car that works, uh, you know, money in the bank, or whatever it is for that we, you know, health. None of that is certain. And the mind knows that. So this first noble truth, as it's called, this liberating way of seeing our experience, seeing the truth of our experience, instead of pretending, if only I get this, I'll be happy, we constantly, we train ourselves to constantly acknowledge that some things are really nice in life, but it's still limited. Some things are really difficult or painful in life, and they're not going to provide happiness. And a lot of things are neutral in life, and they're not going to provide lasting happiness. The world, the, the maturing of this first insight is recognizing that the world, meaning all experiences, they're not actually here the point of experience isn't to satisfy me in some absolute or ultimate sense. That's just not the purpose of the world. But we live as if it's, it is. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get the right collection of experiences so that I'll be safe or happy in some meaningful, lasting, permanent way. But the world is just what it is. It's just this interdependent, movement of experiences coming and going according to many causes 
that we are not in control of. And so we get a mix of pleasant and unpleasant. Some people, unfortunately, have more of the unpleasant. and Some people have more of the pleasant. But everybody gets both and the neutral, of course. And none of it is certain, no guarantees, and none of it is lasting. So we can acknowledge that and really appreciate that because then just because life is uncertain and unreliable and unsatisfying doesn't mean it's stressful or that there's suffering. The suffering comes when we don't like it. I think maybe a couple of weeks ago I, I told the story about the 84th problem. People remember that? It's like the Buddha or and nobody, anybody with wisdom, they can't fix that part of the world that it's ungovernable. It's unreliable, it's uncertain, it's insecure, it's unsatisfying. But the practice, this practice, it can deal with the 84th problem, which is not liking the unreliableness, the uncertainty, the unsatisfactoriness. Like we, the mind, doesn't have to have a problem with uncertainty and impermanence. We can, clearly, we do most of the time, have a problem with impermanence and the uncertainty in life. But it doesn't have to be that way. It is that way. We have a problem with uncertainty, the unreliableness, that we can't just hold on to what's good and completely get away from what's bad because we operate with a self-view. So the second noble truth that I'll talk about the next few weeks really goes to the truth or the reality of craving craving which is always coming out of a self-centered point of view. When I construct the idea of a me, then that me has preferences. And it takes those preferences personally. Now, as a living being, even a, let's say, a perfectly wise living being, like a fully awake, wise human being, there's still going to be preferences for cornflakes versus Cheerios or whatever. There will always be preferences because the preferences get conditioned in by life experience. What this particular, you know, mind-body thing finds more pleasant and what it finds less pleasant. But what do we do with those preferences? Well, we construct a somebody who needs to have Cheerios, who's offended if all there's left is Wheaties or something else. So we create a lot of problems. Like we may not prefer Minnesota winter, but we don't have to construct a somebody who feels personally insulted when it gets cold and feels personally like uh, benefiting and uh, like it's personal that it was so warm today. I mean, this is the trouble with hope. Isn't it? Whenever we see the world in terms of good and bad, even if we're fortunate enough to be getting the good that we want, we're still afraid of the bad. So how about inhabiting a mind or a heart or a way of being that isn't confused about any ideas of good and bad? Like, do we actually need fixed notions of good and bad 
to live a good life, to be, uh, you know, to respond skillfully, be free, be happy. What do ideas of good and bad and the fixations on ideas of good and bad, what does it deliver? Or what is its function? It just makes the mind tight. And this is really looking at this second liberating truth. So the first thing, just to get oriented, we have to break a very powerful cycle, which is to be in denial of the limited nature of experience or to be struggling against the limited nature of experience. So we relax with it. Okay, experience is just what it is. We get our favorite hot beverage and we don't expect it to be anything more than what it is. It's pleasant, sometimes a little too hot, and then sometimes a little too cold, and then gone. And as long as we're not expecting it to be more than what it is, it's not a problem. Yeah, it's just that moment-to-moment experience of having a hot beverage. And when something painful happens, like we're really exhausted or we've got knee pain or we got one of those bad flus that are going around. So to experience that without adding anything to it, so the stuffiness or pressure in the head, it's just that sensation. But when I construct a me who doesn't want to be sick, then we have suffering. So the second noble truth is the truth of, well, how is it that the experience of suffering arises? How is it that the mind has a problem with the unreliable, impermanent, insecure, uncertain nature of experience? The mind actually has to construct that. So the idea that it's here It's not the cold weather that's the cause. It's the mind constructing a somebody who's resisting, like it's constructing or it's putting together the the actual activity of resisting the cold weather. You know how it is when you walk outside in the morning? It's like, it's so, when you look at it, you really see it's insane, but like, what does this do? It doesn't change the temperature. And a lot of times we practice hate in little and big ways as if it's functional. Or like we're really looking forward to Wednesday because we're going to do something on Wednesday. And then when Wednesday comes, what do we do? We release that and we feel, oh my God, this is so great. But why is it great? Because before Wednesday we were like this. And then when Wednesday comes, we do this. We created, the mind itself created the tension. So the experience of gratification, like when we get what we want, it seems so wonderful, but it's only wonderful because we stopped craving it. And there's that little window before we start craving something else. And we have to really notice this. This is called studying the second noble truth, the cause of stress or the cause of suffering. So the, the way it's described in the text, in the, this uh, discourse, and this practitioner's is the liberating understanding of the origination of stress. So instead of the liberating understanding, the Buddha says the second noble truth of the origination of stress. The craving 
or the you could say the attachment to desire that makes for further becoming accompanied by passion and delight. Now, this is interesting because normally we value passion and delight. I want more passion and delight in my life. Anybody not want more passion and delight? But this is what I meant earlier. Whenever we imagine or construct the idea of delight and passion, great, then there's immediately the opposite, the fear of not getting it. You can't have an up without a down. You can't have positive without negative. So now this is where people begin to misunderstand the Buddhist teachings because the only thing that we can understand from hearing that is, well, then that means endless flatness. You know, <laughs> I'll take the ups and downs. And we all think, this is what we all think, we think, I'm clever. I'll get more of the ups than the downs. <laughs> but in this kind of universe, it's always exactly equal. You know, in a frictionless universe, if you push this way, you know, you go the other way. You can't, it's like, have you ever been on those things that are, you know, and you try to turn around, but it's, you can't turn around. There's a, I used to teach in the Bay Area kids back in the early 80s. I was a classroom teacher. And we'd go to this place called the Exploratorium. Maybe some of you went there in San Francisco. It's a great science museum. Now I think it was like the first of these hands-on science museums. Now they're all over the place. And uh, they had one of those little devices where you stand on it and it has some bearings underneath that are pretty frictionless. And you can't turn yourself around because if I like throw myself this way, the body's naturally going to respond going the other way. So you start going that way, but then you pull yourself back. And uh, it's very interesting how this frictionless universe is. And it's the same way with any of the mental constructions. When we construct a positive, there's a demon in our life. Right? And when we think or look at the demon, there's a positive. Like, no demon is the positive. When there's heaven, there's hell. You can't have one without the other. So, this second noble truth is beginning to understand the, what the Buddha calls the middle way. And seeing that the root cause of suffering is that craving that makes for further becoming. An endlessness, like it's always something else. We get what we want, ah. But then, like, what we've been cultivating is the mind that desires. The mind that thinks, if only then, that's not going to end. It just starts all over again and all over again. And then the Buddha goes on, relishing now here and now there. Right? And the point here is that gratification of what we want doesn't lead to the end of desire or to the end of desiring. There may be a momentary quenching of that particular desire but the habit of desiring, the habit of if only, then I'll be happy. I mean, how many of us on vacation thought about vacations that we want to take? Or when eating, thought about things we want to eat? Or when meditating, thinking about retreats we want to go on? Right? It's like we keep missing the moment because we're craving something, wanting something, imagining it. And then the Buddha goes on to describe the three ways craving manifest. Remember, craving is different than desire. 
even though in the text sometimes people translate tana as the word meaning thirst. Uh, they translate that as desire, but it's really would be more accurately translated as attachment or identification with desire. Because as living beings, there's naturally desire. There's nothing wrong with desire, like when the knee hurts to stretch the leg out, or when it's cold to put, excuse me, something warm on, and when it's warm to take something off. These desires are just built into the system. But when we construct ideas around these natural desires, I want to be warmer, I need to be cooler, it has to be this way, I need to get rid of that. So when we have this whole construction of a person, a permanent me, who depends on, then we've created friction. Then there's suffering or stress in the mind. And the three ways that we crave, we crave, we can construct problems around wanting sense experience, sense pleasures, right? We can construct this tense, stressful state around wanting to become somebody. I want to be really in shape. I'd love to lose some weight around my belly so I fit in my pants better. You know? So I imagine, I I want to become that person who's, you know, exercises or who looks a particular way or who acts a particular way or who is respected in a particular way. So the energy of becoming. And these ideas, you know, we construct a somebody, it's an idea in our mind, of course, an image in our mind, and then we energetically long for it, to be that person, which means we energetically don't want to be what's here and now. It's really insane. It's like we've just decided that whatever this is, it's not what I want, because I've got this image in my mind, you know, somewhere up there in the mind, that I do want. So we're immediately at war. The present moment is not it. It's not good enough. The idea I have of who I should be, that's what I want. And sometimes, of course, these ideas are so silly. But but the stress isn't silly. It's real. So there is craving for sense experience. We all know that. That's the most basic. Slightly more subtle is noticing the craving to become somebody, to be somebody, right? Not content with this moment, the way it is now, who I am, what it is. No, but that, yeah. And then, probably not too surprising, craving for non-becoming is sometimes how it's translated, or craving not to be. Like, uh, we want to get rid of this. Just want out. So the way uh, Joseph talks about this in his book, the first, a self, there is a, because they all involve the self-centeredness. So the first involves a self that to gratify. Like there's a me that deserves something sweet at the end of the day, or at least some popcorn. So there's a self, there's a somebody, right? Doesn't it feel that way? Like if you haven't eaten for a while, or haven't whatever, you know, slept for a while. Doesn't it feel like there's a you that deserves to go to sleep or deserves a treat? So that's that dynamic of craving. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Just notice 
the sense of the self who feels like it wants this, will be happy if it gets this. And then the, for the becoming, a self, you know, it's a self to clone in the future, like, I'd like to sort of take this and make it that. Somehow, you know, take the essence of this and put it in that idea that I have of myself. Retired or wealthy. The guy who wins the lottery or, you know, whatever, that finds the right person. And then the craving for non-becoming, a self to get rid of. Like, I'm tired of this self. I don't, I'm sick of this personality. I'm sick of this life situation. I just want it to be over. As if that will be happiness. You know, to just be done with it. And he ends that, that section by saying, because something is unpleasant, we desire its non-existence, which leads to a craving for something pleasant or wanting to experience a future existence different from what is happening. So, you know, in a real way, these ways of craving, they're very similar. It's all about a rejection of this, an an uneasiness with this, this arrogant assumption that this isn't it, right? Isn't that a good definition of human beings? We're arrogantly certain this isn't it. I don't know what it is, but this isn't it. This isn't good enough, right? And that is our basic mode for going through life. This isn't it. This isn't it. This isn't it. This isn't it. And even when this is it, it's like consciously or not, we know we can't, it's like sand through the fingers. We can't hold on to it. So it's not really it. Because if it was really it, it wouldn't change. But that would really be hell. I mean, as bad as it is, when things are pleasant and they're changing, if things never changed, that would be hell. (laughs) So, but we don't have to have that relationship with experience. Now, you can't go, from an ego point of view, you can't go directly to non-craving. Because that would be the obvious answer. Okay, just stop craving, Mark. Don't try to become anybody. Don't try to get anything pleasant and don't try to get out of this. (laughs) It's like, that would really freeze us up because it would be this big sort of parental should. You know, don't do that. You should do that. We get really tight. So the, the release, the cessation of craving comes from seeing the craving. It's the understanding of craving that leads to the, to its cessation. Remember, Craving, it's an activity. It's an activity that is happening in our heart or mind. So it's happening right here. If there's no craving in a moment, then there's freedom. So the craving isn't like we're not suffering because of the craving we did two weeks ago or an hour ago or even a few seconds ago. If there's any uneasiness, any lack of freedom, any lack of happiness, it's because of the selfing and the which is this activity of craving, this construction of construction of a somebody who wants something or wants to get rid of something. That's happening right now. So awakening, freedom, happiness in a deeper spiritual sense 
it's not about attaining something. This is something you hear a lot in the Buddhist tradition. It's not a path of attainment. It's a path of cessation. It's the mind understanding something until that something ceases. An activity, an unnecessary activity that hasn't been clearly understood becomes clearly understood and the cause for its cessation is the clear understanding of it. And the cause for its continuation is the not seeing it clearly. When the mind sees clearly that it's holding a hot pan, it lets go. Doesn't need, we don't need special instructions how to let go of the hot pan. Just lets go. And it's very much the same way with all neurotic activity. When it's seen, the mind lets go. When it's not seen, the mind's tendency is to continue with it because it, it mistakenly thinks, understands, or believes that through this neurotic, stressful activity, I will become free from stress. And it is so engaged in that wrong activity, it doesn't see that the cause for it is the trying to get rid of the stress. Addressing the experience of stress or uneasiness in the heart from the self point of view is what causes the stress in the heart. Responding to the stress in the heart from a self point of view is what causes the stress in the heart. Misunderstanding the experience of stress, interpreting it as me, it's happening to me, so therefore, I want to do something about it. That is the cause for stress. So to change that mode, we first, the first noble truth, we undertake the training to understand, oh, there is experience and it's limited. Whatever the experience is in the moment, oh, it's like this now. This is what we do with open attention practice. We just are aware, the mind is aware of whatever's predominant in that moment. It might be a mental phenomena, it might be a physical phenomena, it might be a sound, but whatever it is, it's like this now. Can this be okay? Right, so we have this, we train the mind to have this neutral, clear, vividly present, intimate relationship with whatever's showing up in the moment. Oh, it's like this. And that reveals the limited nature. And if we keep tracking experience moment to moment, we'll see the habit of the mind to want to get something, to attain something, or to get rid of something. And we'll see immediately the stress that's always involved with that self-centered action. Me trying to fix the problem of my life. So one teacher said, uh, which I think is useful, we go from this view that... uh, I'm living my life to fix the problems that the self has to practicing, living, being aware of the problem the self is. So we're not trying to fix the problems the self has. We're trying to see that viewing this from a self point of view is always stressful and unnecessary. And when we observe that closely enough, continuously enough, then starts what starts to arise are moments when the heart releases that activity of craving. And we have a moment of non-craving. 
or the cessation of craving. This is what the Buddha means by awakening, a moment of awakening or a moment of liberation. It's not, don't think of it as some attaining some mystical state in some other place. A lot of that language came later, after the time of the Buddha. The Buddha was talking in very pragmatic terms. It doesn't mean it isn't a profound, earth-shaking experience. It is, <clears throat> these moments of awakening. But it's very simple. The mind sees things as they are, and in that balanced, honest, direct experiencing of things as they are, it sees the activity, this constructive activity of selfing. The construction of a somebody who doesn't like the way it is, somebody who wants it differently, somebody who wants to become somebody, somebody who wants to be done with it all. It sees that, and it sees that it's always immediately stressful. And in seeing it intimately like that, letting go happens. You don't let go, I don't let go. Letting go happens when the weight or the unpleasantness or the insanity is seen. It's so unnecessary. So it's just immediately abandoned. And then in that moment, when their mindfulness is there, then the mind realizes something. Like it realizes the reality of non-grasping. Like for us now, mostly it's theoretical. Like we can imagine, cause, but not necessarily very well, but we can at least hypothetically imagine being a human being with kids or with a job or you know, with a body, with a life, but not grasping. It's kind of a provocative idea, like not being tight at all in life. Not afraid of death, not afraid of success, not afraid of saying what needs to be said, not afraid of being quiet, not afraid of getting old, not afraid of having to live in this world with all its messiness, all its confusion and uncertainty, all the ignorance. Light-hearted, but intimate, not dismissive of any of it. Right? We can kind of imagine that non-craving. And then in moments we can actually experience that lightness, that freedom of in this moment or in these moments, this mind isn't bound up with that constructive activity of me wanting something, me wanting to get rid of something, me wanting to become somebody. That activity is just not there in a moment. And if we're awake in that moment, we'll notice that's the third noble truth, is noticing or realizing a mind, this mind, this heart, without craving, without greed, anger, and delusion, as it's said in the Buddhist tradition. So we'll keep coming back to this for a few more weeks at least. There's, you know, I didn't really talk much about the third noble truth, and then there's the fourth noble truth, which rounds it all out. But... The first two will take care of us for a long time (laughs) and lead naturally into the third and fourth noble truths, these ways of being that uh, are available to all of us. So we have about five minutes, seven minutes. If there are any thoughts from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or questions, yeah, Tim. Um, So thanks for the great great talk tonight. I definitely, you know, I'm I'm coming to be a believer in this idea that... uh, the pleasantness, or at least being able to believe that pleasantness is, is at least attention. And I've never had some really amazing experiences where, through my practice, I've watched that tension release. I've seen something clearly for what it was, and like you said, it's like 
know, reminds me of Jacob's thoughts about letting them go. Um, but I've noticed myself recently, it's almost like I'm, I, I've enjoyed those experiences in my practice, relieving tension so much that I've started to crave that, like crave these moments of insight that release tension. Um, that feels really nice. Um, and, and I have to say, I, you know, I, even though I've heard teachers, you and others say that it's normal to be afraid of the kind of that flatness, the blandness of, of, um, you know, of, of the release of, or of, the, of the end of suffering. I, I find that I am, there's a part of me that's kind of afraid. It's funny, I'm getting tight about the release of tightness, but like, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it doesn't sound wholly amazing to me. And there's a part of me even that, that worries about, like, almost like a normalness associated with fully engaging in human experience of the rises and the falls, and I worry about, it makes me sad to think about being distant from that being. Yeah. But, you know, we won't be removed from the ups and downs. We'll be removed from creating friction around the ups and downs. There's still going to be ups and downs. There still will be the pain of loss. There'll still be the happiness of receiving what's pleasant to receive in life. Right? We'll be more intimate, more real in those ups and downs. But the the only thing that ceases is the mind's neurotic habit of creating friction around the movements of ups and downs as they naturally arise in our lives. That's the only thing that changes. So you could say, I mean, the Buddha didn't say this, but I think it's it works. You know, someone who's more and more awake, they're the first person to laugh and the first to cry and the first to smile and the first to, you know, respond and the first to put it down. So it's like the personality becomes more nimble and more real of really what it is, right? Because the only thing that gets taken away is <clears throat> the the suffering, the tightness, not the responsivity in the personality. So that's important to remember that we're not putting anything down and we're not trying to become somebody who's a Buddhist or who's equanimous. Equanimity is something that's realized. Like we realize that the heart is light. We realize that the heart is more and more unflappable when things come and go. Like, great. You know, now it's this way. Now it's this way. It's not like a stance that I'm going to be equanimous or I'm going to be free. It's just a natural unfolding. So, like it or not, we're already in this process. You know, you walked in the door or you... Even before you walked in the door, it's just in the air. The teachings of the Buddha and these teachings generally, they're in the air. Everybody has some intuition around the power of non-attachment and non-clinging. And we're in this sort of dance where we kind of love it. We kind of deeply, intuitively are drawn to it, magnetically almost. And we've got so much momentum, cultural momentum to you know, reject it. And so we're sort of like getting drawn in and then, you know, oh, no, no. And that's kind of, you know, because you really do- have dove in in a big way over the last months. And, and so it makes sense that, you know, on the one hand, the experiences that can't be denied that you've had create real confidence that I don't know what this is, but there's something here and it, feel, it has a flavor of liberation or freedom or ease. And I don't know if I want it. It's sort of interesting, yeah. 
And the key is just to practice with it all. When you're attached to the memories of your experiences, notice that that attachment is what it is, painful. And when you're afraid of what might unfold, notice the fear for what it actually is in that moment. It's tension. It's painful. So just keep honestly acknowledging the experiences as they show up. Because remember, the awakening process is a natural process. We talk about it sometimes as like, I'm you know, undertaking this path of awakening. I'm a Buddhist practitioner. But all of this is of the activity of nature. And so, in a way, we're just part of this dance, like even receiving the teachings now, where it's like they come in, and if part of your mind is going, oh, who knows? Well, that's nature too. And if part of the mind is going, hey, this is the best thing I've ever heard, that's part of nature too. So, part of what our practice becomes is just trusting. Trusting the natural unfolding of things. Initially, there's some work to do because before the practice can just be trust, we have to sensitize the instrument. Because if the mind or heart isn't sensitive, trust isn't enough to support the awakening process. Because when the, we're sort of have a very um, disconnected or dull mind, scattered mind, then there's not enough sensitivity to direct the life towards freedom, towards awakening. So that's why initially, as an ego being, as somebody who wants to be free, we grasp the idea, in a wrong sense, but a necessary sense. I want to be free. right? We take it personally. I want to be free, so I'm going to go to common ground, and I'm going to learn how to concentrate my mind and become more calm. But once we do that and we hear some of the other teachings and we have some more sensitivity, then it just starts to take us along. So initially we start, I'm the one who's doing it, and then we just get swept along with the practice. And later, as we get deeper into it, it's more about just trusting that it's happening on its own and letting it happen. The mind is already sensitive. It's hard. Like We can construct really toxic stories about being better than others or being worse than others or hating somebody. But it's hard to hold those together because the weight is so... It's like hard not to be sensitive to how heavy those dramas are. And the heart just wants to put them down again. And you'll just notice that you just don't want to be as involved in neurotic dramas. It's like, why? Why pick it up? Yeah, thanks, Tim. You need to leave it here. It's 8.30, so we'll just take a few seconds, just enough time to take a breath or two together. Okay to let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.